Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Good morning, church. Uh, We'll continue our teaching series today in the book of Genesis. If you're new, we just go verse by verse through the books of the Bible. And in Christian tradition, today we celebrate Palm Sunday. And this passage sort of goes alongside of that. Uh, If you're not familiar with Palm Sunday, it is the day that uh, we remember that Jesus rode on a donkey and he traveled into the city of Jerusalem. And at that time, everyone took palm branches and were celebrating this God who they thought would be a military conqueror, but he came to be a suffering servant to die on the cross. And then if you're a Christian, you know that Jesus later will come back again as the conquering king. And so today we remember that Jesus enters in to cities and to people's lives into places of brokenness. And we remember that with Palm Sunday. And today we remember that with this story, that God enters into brokenness and hardships and challenges and meets us right where we are. And so if you're taking notes, we'll be in Genesis 22 today. And this is sort of a culmination passage. In fact, it actually, this whole passage ends up on a mountain. And if you have been reading your Bible over the past several years of your life, you notice that lots of major things happen on mountains. You've got the Sermon on the Mount. You've got the Mount of Transfiguration. After Jesus' uh, crucifixion, resurrection, they meet on a mount together. God gives a law to Moses on Mount Sinai. There's tons of mountains. And even at the very end, God brings salvation from Mount Zion, right? There's tons of mounts. And this is another mount that we see that points us to the Mount at Calvary. And that's what we'll see today. Uh, as I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about my old uh, high school days, and I had this friend that failed the driving test like five times. I don't know how you do that, especially where, I'm, where I grew up. There's tons of parking space. You don't have to parallel park on your test. Failed five times in a row. And what blew my mind is that he was angry about it. He brought this, you, you're the one that failed it. It's not like anyone else's, else's fault. And he's like, well, it doesn't matter if I pass a test, right? It's not that big of a deal. I'm like, bro, It's absolutely a big deal. Like, it's going to keep you safe. It's definitely going to keep others safe on the road. Like, plus, when you fail the test, it helps you show, like, what areas you need to work on. So, bro, like, where'd you fail? He's like, I kind of failed all of it. I failed the written part. I failed the I part. I failed the driving part. I'm like, bro, like, you shouldn't be driving at all. And so, I was, we were having this conversation. I remember this. And he might visit us in Boston sometime, so act like I didn't tell the story. Um, but we talked about, hey, bro, if, like, if you just like learn how to pass this test, you can go further, you can go faster, you can get the freedom fulfillment that you're actually longing for. Just take the time and work on the areas that you had failed. And I was thinking about today's passage of God testing Abraham. I thought the same thing is true for us Christians, that we, you and I are to understand how to pass God's test so that we can further go in our relationship with him and find the freedom and fulfillment that all of us are actually longing for. And so that's really what we're going to see today is God testing Abraham, but it's not to harm him or to trick him. It's to show him maybe where some areas that he needs to grow in for his own good, for others' good. And that's what we're going to see what happens in this story. So here's what we titled today's message, the God who provides, if you're taking notes, the God who provides how Abraham's test actually proves God's faithfulness. And so here's what we'll do, guys. We're going to walk through this story I'm going to point out some major points and themes. And the very end, I'm just going to give you four quick application points. And if you know me, you just heard quick and you're like, ooh, let's see how that goes. 
but that's what we're going to na- uh, aim at for today. So guys, let's start in verse one of this passage. It says this. Um, actually, it, sorry, it, it starts with a transition uh, from last week. I just want to give you a heads up. We studied 21 last week. We're studying 22 this week. And it starts with a transition. It starts out like this. It says, after these things. Now, we're going to work a lot more faster than just three words at a time. But I want you to notice that these verses indicate us that some time has passed from the events that happened last week. Scholars suggest that Isaac is no longer two or three years old that we saw at his weaning party last week. Y'all remember that? That Old Testament people, they're just going to celebrate whatever they want to celebrate at all times. And so he's not two or three anymore. Scholars believe that he's actually a teenager now. So he's 15 or 16 or 17 years old. So after these things indicates that some time has passed. And so now by the time that we read this story, we see that Abraham and Sarah, the mom and dad, are finally at peace They're both like over 100 years old now. They're comfortable, they're at ease, and they are joyously experiencing their long-awaited son that God promised to them now 40 years earlier. So guys, roughly 20 years have passed since last week's study in chapter 21. But as the reader, we begin to sense that that phrase, after these things, may also indicate something else. It may indicate that Sarah and Abraham maybe in a place of complacency or idolatry, which is where you focus on creation more than the creator. And so this phrase, therefore, might not just be a transition, but rather a position of their hearts. That after these things was more that they were focused on these things on earth to give them comfort or significance and not their God in heaven. So since they now have this son, it's the one thing that consumed their focus and and formed all their decisions for a decade. So maybe after these things showed that their hearts were after the things on earth. And so it's at this point of tranquility in their life, in their journey, that God brings up a test. And if you just got finished with school or you're in school, like no one like loves tests. I hate a test. I rather just have some sort of oral project where I can like give a speech. That's way much more that I enjoyed growing up. I hated tests. And God shows up and brings a test. And again, the point here is not to trick them or catch them or make them fail. It's to show them some areas that their heart needs to work on and depend on God more for their own good and God's glory. So here's what we know. God gives tests to ensure that our hearts are not tethered to the things of this world and that they are tethered to the truths of his word. That's why God gives tests. If you're wanting to take that note, I'll say it one more time for us. A test to ensure that our hearts are not tethered to the things of this world, but to the truths of his word. Because we know, and God knows that a life that's tethered to the things of this world brings despair. But a life that's tethered to his word brings us delight. And that's the point God is trying to make. He uses a test to show us where our hearts are actually tethered to. And then he seeks through the test to redirect our hearts to him. And that's exactly what we'll see in this passage today. So verse one continues by saying this. So God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, exclamation point, he calls out to him. And Abraham immediately says this, here I am. Now, guys, you notice the eager and readiness that Abraham has in his response, right? Here I am. It's like immediate. And one pastor said that here I am, that phrase is not just like some lower, sort of like Hebrew hello that Abraham's giving to God. It's a way of saying, God, I stand ready. 
I'm ready for your commands. You're my Lord. You're my leader. What's happening next? I'll follow. This statement, here I am, is a statement of trust and of faith and of surrender. So maybe Abraham has learned to trust God overall. And so it's at this moment that I ask you, church, have you learned to trust God like Abraham? Have over the past 20 years or 30 years or 40 years or 50 years of your life, have you learned to trust God and respond with ready obedience to his word? Now, God may not be speaking to you verbally like he spoke to Abraham then, but he did speak to us through his words, through the scripture. And so does your heart have the same posture that Abraham does, guys? Where you hear his word and you're like, yes, I'm ready. Here I am. What does your word have to say to me? Or when you look at scripture or if you look at scripture, do you seek to just pick out the words that you like? Words that make you feel good. And then the words that are difficult, that don't go with how you feel, you, you kind of reject and put aside. Because it seems that maybe Abraham has learned to trust God here. And the question is, have you and have I? But we'll, wait, we'll have to wait and see the answer to Abraham. Is he learning to trust? Because the test is really just getting started. Now guys, to be honest, I find Abraham's reaction here um, pretty amazing. Considering that every time God has called out to him, Before this, God has asked him to do something that's really hard. He's like, hey, I want you to leave everything, your family, your home, everything, and Genesis 12. And by the way, I'm not gonna tell you where you're gonna go. Just go forward and I'll be your GPS, recalculating, turn left, and then you'll end up somewhere. That's really hard. Or God has asked him to attempt something impossible, which is like being a dad at 100 years old. That sounds exhausting. I'm 34 and have fairly okay health and like, I'm tired. Sometimes I fall asleep. Like my kids were like, we'll watch TV for a second after dinner. And they're like, daddy, wake up. It's time to put me to bed. I'm like, oh yeah, I guess it is. And Emily's there like, come on, let's go put the kids to bed. I can't imagine doing something this hard. Every time God calls out to Abraham, it's something difficult. But his answer therefore blows me away. Here I am. I'm ready to trust you. Guys, honestly, if God called out to me again and I was Abraham having been through what everything Abraham's been through, I might be a little leery here. I might've delayed in my answer, like I'll get to it, God, or I don't wanna obey you right now, God, or I'll obey you in a different season or I'll do whatever later, but not Abraham and hopefully not you either, church. I hope that every time you see God's word, your response is, God, here I am. I'm ready. I'm seeking to trust you. And so church, again, do you trust God this way? Do you respond in immediate obedience to whatever God has revealed in his word about you? And church, I pray you do. Guys, the difference in a life of drudgery and duty towards God's word in a life of joy is really centered in on how much you truly trust Jesus with every detail of your life. As the hymnist writes this, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus says the Lord." Guys, you show me a happy Christian, one pastor said, and I'll show you someone who has learned to trust God in every area of life. But show me a faltering Christian and I'll show you someone who has yet to learn how good God is in what he has commanded to us. So here's the test that God gives to Abraham. You ready for it? Notice the three-peat emphasis here in verse two. Here's the test. So God says, Abraham, take your son, Take your only son, Isaac, 
whom you love. Like it just keeps going deeper and deeper into his heart here. He says, I want you to go to the land of Moriah, which will be a key in a moment, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, if you're like me upon first reading this and your Christian journey, you're like, what? God's calling for a child sacrifice? This is not the God that I want to follow, which we'll get to in a moment. But just think about Abraham hearing this just for a moment. Abraham like just got this kid. Now I know that teenage years are probably hard for parents, but no one's gonna sacrifice their child on a burnt offering because it's so bad, okay? He just got this kid. It's after 25 years of pain-filled waiting and struggling. And now God is calling him to offer him up as a sacrifice? Like what in the world is God doing here? Guys, this child represents everything to his mom and dad, Sarah and Abraham. Guys, all their hopes and all their dreams and all their affections have been centered on this kid. And now God is saying, offer him up as a burnt sacrifice. Like what in the world is God doing here? Well, in the coming moments, church, I want you to see that God is not actually after Isaac's death. He's after Abraham's life. God is really after Abraham's heart. And if he can have Abraham's heart, then he can steer Abraham's life down a road of goodness and blessing for Abraham. And that's what God wants. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? So he's testing Abraham. He's asking Abraham, listen, are you willing to give up what you love most to the one who loves you the most? And church, the same question that God is asking of Abraham is what he's asking to you. Are you willing to give up the things that you love most? Security, your status, comforts, power, pleasure, for the one who loves you the most. So think about your money for a moment. Think about your possessions, everything that's in your ownership. Think about each relationship you have in your life. Think about all the time that you're entrusted every second of each day and think about your even own life and its trajectory. Are you willing to give up the things you love most there to the one who loves you the most? And church, that is really the core of this entire message. It's the test of the heart. There's a testing of the heart that's happening. And now it's in this moment that pastor and counselor Paul Tripp says these words about the heart. He says, our hearts are always being ruled by someone or something. And so God's always after this area of us, the heart. And so the most important question in determining what rules us is by asking this, what is functionally ruling my heart in this or that situation? And my emotions will often tell me what rules it. If I'm angry, if I'm deeply despaired, if I'm easily irritated and impatient, my emotion is showing what really is ruling my heart, what is ultimate to me. Because listen, he says, whatever controls my heart will control your actions and then will ultimately control your life. And so what God is wanting to do, Christian, in your life is to control the heart. Not to make you move around like a robot, but to control the affections of your heart. What you love and what you think about and what you hope for. Because listen, if God can control the heart, 
then he moves through your decisions. He moves through the direction of your life in order to bring you good, him glory, and then ultimately us to heaven. And so church, God is after our hearts. He's pursuing us in that way. And he's doing the same with Abraham. God is seeking to recapture Abraham's heart for himself so that he and us find the forgiveness and the freedom and the fulfillment that if we're all honest, all of us are really looking for. And so that's what we're going to see with Abraham, that God is seeking to recapture his heart. Verse three, so Abraham rose early in the morning, the verse says. Guys, this indicates his immediate obedience here. Guys, I'm the pastor of this church and I sometimes don't like waking up early morning to come and do this job. I love you. I love this job. I love the calling. But to rise early in the morning, he's like spry and ready. And that just kind of blows my mind a little bit. Like this is his beloved son and he's rising early in the morning, but he has a, he has a deep trust in what God's going to do here. I wish I had this type of faith that he has. He doesn't have excuses. He doesn't have complaints. He doesn't say how hard his life is or how busy his schedule is. In fact, dude just goes away for like three days away from his life and his job to obey God and what he's called him to do. He trusts God is faithful and has a purpose in all of this. And so even in this moment, we see that Abraham is giving over his heart to God and God is capturing his heart for his good. Verse 3b, so what's he do? He's up early, he saddles up his donkey, he takes his two young men with him, which we'll come back in a moment for a Christ connection. He takes two young men with him. And he takes his son, Isaac, and he goes out and he cuts the wood for the burnt offering. Keep in mind, this guy's 100 years old. Could you imagine your grandfather cutting wood? A 100-year-old dad cutting wood? It's a lot of sacrifice here. God cut the burnt offerings and arose and went to the place that God had told them. Then on the third day, Another Christ connection we'll get to. I can't wait to get there. On the third day of their journey, Abraham lifted up his eyes and finally saw that place from afar. Now, it's interesting to note here that scholars say that it only actually requires two days to journey from where Abraham was in Beersheba to the land that he was going in Moriah. It's a distance of only 45 miles that would only take about two days. So why the extra day and what takes him so long? Well, first off, he's over 100 years old. So back off, right? Give the guy a break. Take some time, time to get there, okay? He's probably, the, the second thing though, he's probably taking his time. Not delaying his obedience, but he's probably taking his time recounting all the promises that God gave him about this son. And so imagine him kind of shuffle-stepping his way really in his brain. Have you ever been on a trip, been in a conversation, been at somewhere, and you're just in your head? Like life is going around, uh, like outside of you, but you're just in your brain. I can imagine he's just shuffle-stepping, recounting, but, but God, you said that the nations would come through this son. But you now call me to offer him up? But God, you said that a Messiah would come through this son, but you're telling me to offer him up? But God, you said you would be a, we would be a blessing to the nations through the son. And now you're calling me to offer up. I'm sure he's recounting the promises that God had given to him. And then he's recalling them back to God. And I imagine that that's what's making, taking some time here. Which Christian is a good practice that I've been encouraging you to do for weeks. To remember and to recount 
the promises of God. And I think that's what Abraham's doing right now, which we're going to see in a moment from Hebrews when we get there. I can't like, I can't even preach in the moment. I'm like so excited about what we're trying to get to with this story, but I'll get, I'll get there eventually. So we have to ask this question, right? What drove Abraham and motivated him to get up to this mountain? We're learning, as Tim Keller points out to us, we're learning that it wasn't the strength of Abraham's commitment that motivated him to get up the mountain. I will obey God. Like that's not his mentality. We're learning that it wasn't the strength of his commitment. It was the strength of God's character that motivated Abraham up the mountain. It wasn't Abraham saying, I can do this. But he was saying, but God, I I trust you're faithful. You've called me to do this. I don't know how it's going to work out. You promised this. And what you're saying seems like it contradicts, but I'm going to trust you. Guys, if that is a moment for all of us to hold on to, Christian, if you feel that what God is telling you is contradicting some feeling or desire, you've got to trust his word. He's got a purpose and a plan and a promise, and you've got to trust what God is saying. The only thing that can drive you onward through difficult times and challenging hardships, what helps you move forward on the third day of whatever situation you're going through when the stakes are high, it's not the strength of your commitment that gets you through. It's the unwavering conviction in the character and the goodness and the promise of God and your faith in that. Amen? God will provide for us on the third day when things are hardest. And it's not your commitment that gets you through. It's the conviction that God is good and faithful and has promises for you. So what happens in verse five? What happens next? Then Abraham gets there. He says to his young men that traveled with him, he says, guys, I want you to stay here with the donkey. And then he says something mind-blowing to me, to be honest with you. He says, I and the boy will go over there and what? Worship. And then... We'll come again to you. Now, this is fascinating for me. I might be nerding out a little bit, but it's fascinating to me. Abraham tells his hired servants to wait there with the donkey so that he and Isaac can go and worship God. And then more amazing, he says that they're both going to come back again. Like what in the world is happening here? Two things I want you to see here. Did you notice my emphasis there that Abraham calls his offering an act of worship. Do you see that? Like he's not talking about his act and complaining about what God has done. He says, we're going there to worship. And so Koa, let me ask you, church, do you view sacrifice in the same way that it's an act of worship? When you sacrifice your time to do setup for our church or you sacrifice doing kids ministry or sacrifice serving at a community event or even sacrifice just by coming to community group because that's hard sometimes as well or even sacrificially giving financially to the ministry of our church. Let me ask you, do you view that as worship? When you're tired after a long day and you are wore out from your coworkers and you just want to push them in the face, you get home and your roommate and your spouse, your kids are wearing you out. Do you see the opportunity to serve as worship, as something done for God's glory? Or do you see it just as duty and drudgery. Guys, I wish I could have this type of faith that Abraham has to see everything through the lens of worship, even the hardest thing that God is calling him to give up. Second thing I want you to notice is not just how he sees this as an act of worship, but do you notice like what Abraham said to his servants? 
He said that he and his son would both what? Come back to them again. Now, what's this all about, right? Does Abraham have some like magician tricks up his sleeve here? Does he know something that we don't know about? Well, what I love about the Bible is that it's always going to bring some clarity to those questions. The author of Hebrews gives us some insight into what Abraham is actually thinking in this very moment. And I love, I love this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 and 19 says this. By faith, when Abraham was tested, he offered up Isaac. Now why? Verse 19, I love this. Because he considered, he figured, he guessed, he concluded that God was able even to raise him up from the dead. I love that. I love this. Abraham doesn't have all the details. He didn't even know that God could raise the dead. He hasn't seen it before. He hasn't gone to seminary. He hadn't studied the doctrines of the resurrection. Like he didn't know any of this stuff. Dude just figured this. Well, if God could bring life into Sarah's womb, then maybe God can bring life into a tomb as well. That's what the dude concludes. Since Abraham saw God's power in Isaac's birth, he trusted God's love even in Isaac's death. So it's here that he makes, we see this point that that God made Abraham a promise. And what Abraham's learned over the past 40 years is that if God makes a promise, he's going to keep it. So he figures that even if my son dies, God is just gonna keep his promise and God's gonna make a blessing through this child to the other nations and a Messiah, Jesus Christ would come through him. So he concludes, God just gonna bring him back. There's just gonna be a resurrection. This blows my mind. Dude didn't go to cemetery, which I, I joke around called seminary because it almost killed me. It was a lot of work. All of that, it was like, he didn't, he just concluded, well, God can bring life to Sarah in the womb. Then I guess he can bring Isaac back. He just, he, so much faith here. I love his faith. Christian, do you have this type of faith? Faith that in the face of impossible odds that you would trust that God will be faithful to you in his promises, no matter what. Namely, the promise that we beat over and over, Romans 8, 28, that God will work out all things, all things for you, Christian, for your good and God's glory. And Abraham trusts this. And I hope you do as well. Verse six. So Abraham, he took the wood of the burnt offering. And I love this. What an awkward dad moment. And he just like laid it on his son, Isaac, for the walk. And he took his hand and the fire and the knife and they both go hand in hand on a walk together. Verse seven, and Isaac said to his father, understandably so, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. The second time of three times we see Abraham say, here I am, showing how ready, how confident he is in God's promises. And Isaac said these sort of heartbreaking words here. He says, behold, dad, the, the fire's here and the wood's here, but like, where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Now I've had some awkward conversations with my dad. I love him. We've had the birds and the beads talk. I can't imagine having this talk with my son where you're like, hey, bud, like you're the lamb. Like I can't imagine this really tough moment here. Awkward moment for sure, but Abraham displays amazing faith. Look what he says next. In verse eight, he answers, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And what does Isaac do? He just trusts his dad. He just trusts his dad. And they go up to the mountain together. 
Now let's pause here, just for a brief moment, catch your breath, and address a question that's commonly brought up when considering this passage. Here's what I thought, and here's what you may think or what your friends or neighbor thinks. Why would a good God ask one of his followers to do such a terrible thing and to test him in such a gruesome way? In fact, Richard Dawkins says that this story is one of the main reasons why he can't believe the Bible and he won't trust in a Christian God. He says, this story is so incredulous. It's child abuse. It's, it's cruel. How could you ever believe that a God is real and good if he asks his servants to kill his own children? And so how do we respond to that? And that feeling that may come up in our own hearts, like, God, why would you do this? Why can't you just give Abraham like a multiple choice question? Do you love me? Will you give me your heart? And then Abraham can turn in the paper and then gets an A and gets a hug and goes on with his day. Like, why like this? Well, two things. First, let me be clear. God never called Abraham to kill or murder his son. God called Abraham to offer his son. A small nuance in verbiage, but a big difference in meaning. To kill would mean to murder human life. And God is opposed to murder. And God commands, will not contradict his character. So that's not what God is saying. He's saying to offer your son, which means that Abraham is to surrender Isaac over to the Lord, to offer him up and let the Lord decide what to do. So God is not commanding murder of a human life here. He's commanding surrender, a giving over of trust of that life. Second thing, in Near Eastern culture, this is really sad, but it's true that child sacrifice was sadly a somewhat usual religious practice in the lands that were around Abraham's home. And Abraham, Abraham being aware of this must have thought, oh, I guess that the God of Yahweh works this way as well. And so God desiring to reveal that he's actually not that type of God, he sets up like this really dramatic play, the story for Abraham to be a part of, to show just how different this God is. And this is how different he is, that God doesn't call people to give up the lives of others, but a God who gives up his life for others. That's what we're seeing here, is that God is not the God of other gods in other lands. That God is saying, I'm the one that's gonna give up my life so others don't have to give up their own. It's all pointing us to Jesus here. God is the God who gives up his life for others. Now, just to let you know, you're like still, why, why did it have to be like this? Just, I don't, have not studied for a long time uh, Near Eastern culture, but in their day, it was a lot of oral tradition, a lot of storytelling is what got across points. And so how would God want to communicate who he is? He does it through story. He does it through a play. Now, modern days, in our day, you just throw up a PowerPoint and do a slide deck and just walk through step one, step two, step three about who God is. And people's like, okay, sounds good. But during that day, there's some sort of poetic story. And that's what God's putting out on display, that I'm a God that loves you. And I'm going to give my life for you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to fulfill my promise for you. I'm not like the other gods in the other lands. Does that make sense? You guys with me on that? So we will see indeed that God does preserve Isaac and he does provide another sacrifice in his place. He does provide a ram caught in a thicket, which will point us towards another sacrifice 
who was called up on a cross to die in our place. But again, we're not quite there yet. We got to get there. Verse nine. So when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built an altar there. And he laid the wood in order and he bound Isaac up, his son. And he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, I can't imagine how heavy this moment must have been for Abraham. But what I do want to point out is Isaac for a moment. Can we just like give a shout out to our boy Isaac? Like Isaac, we do know because he's a teenager, dude's old enough to carry his own wood up to the altar. We see here in that text. So therefore he definitely could have been strong enough to evade his dad or beat up his dad or run from his dad or overcome his dad, right? But here we see that Isaac, and he's trusting God and he's trusting his dad. Now, how in the world does Isaac have that type of faith? Well, it's in this moment that Pastor J.D. Greer notes that he must have had inherited trust in God from his own dad. That Isaac heard his dad talk about God all the time. Isaac saw his dad live out his faith and heard the stories of Abraham and Sarah wrestling and trusting and waiting for promise. Isaac probably heard the story of God making a covenant with them, with the animals, and how God walked through the two animals, promising that he would fulfill the covenant. And so in this moment, Isaac displays the same faith of his dad. And his dad's trust in God catches fire in his own heart. And so what we're seeing here is that this type of faith is caught, not often taught. And so Christian, let me ask you that same question. In some way, does the way that you live your life, does it inspire the faith of others to trust in God as well? The way that you think through hardships, the way that you go through challenges, the way you live out your days, does it inspire the faith of others to trust in God? Because that's what we see with Abraham. In this moment, he's displaying great faith. And his son, Isaac, is caught up in this faith and says, Dad, I'm going to trust you. You said that there's going to be a, another lamb. And I don't know why I'm being bound up in rope right now. Why I'm being picked up and put on this altar right now. But he doesn't fight. And he doesn't run. He has a trust because he trusts what his dad is saying. This amazing moment of passing on faith. in church, let us be a church that passes on our faith not that we're forcing it down people's throats, but let us lovingly pass on what is true and right about who God is to our friends, our neighbors, our children, the world around us. I love this type of faith. And if we don't have this type of faith, church, let us consider if your behavior really matches with your beliefs. And let this moment cause us to remember that. So verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. Again, just a reminder here, God was not commanding the murder of Isaac, but the testing of Isaac. If God just wanted Isaac murdered, then Abraham could have just killed him back at the tent at his home and saved himself from his journey. But what we're seeing is that there's something much deeper going on here. Guys, at this moment, so many pastors and so many scholars know here that the offering of the firstborn in the Old Testament symbolizes the debt that mankind owes to God. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. 
And so because of our sin, our consequence before God is his justice. In the courtroom of God, if we sin, we fall short of his standards, we bring harm to ourselves and others, we dishonor his name, and God says the justice, the punishment is death. It's a hard sentence to grasp. However, through the Old Testament, God lays claim, therefore, to this firstborn because it represented people's very lives and their legacies. In the Hebrew sacrificial system, God required the firstborn of the cattle or the sheep to be sacrificed to him, as well as the first fruits of their grain. The only only way that you could spare the life of the firstborn was to make a sacrifice in its place. So it's through this that God is showing us, church, that there is a debt for every person and what we owe to God, and it's our life through death. But therefore, God gives his life in our place and doesn't take ours if we would turn and trust in him. And so this story is going to show us that God will provide a way to cover the debt that we owe. And that's what we see what happens next. Verse 11, so when the knife was suspended in the air, ready to come down on Isaac, verse 11, the angel of the Lord. By the way, if you see an angel of the Lord, not an angel, you see that of the Lord, this is more than likely, uh, angel means messenger. And so could this be a Christ figure? Could it be Christ taking on some sort of form, speaking to Abraham that maybe looked like an angel? Because Christ had not taken on flesh yet, but he did take on some form to speak. Every time we see an angel of the Lord, it maybe signifies that maybe this is Christ as a messenger in some way communicating. So the angel of the Lord called from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Anytime you see a name mentioned twice in scripture, it carries urgency and expectancy to listen. So God cries out, Abraham, Abraham. And he said again, third time, here I am. He's ready to obey whatever God may say. Verse 12, he says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Guys, in this moment, Abraham proved himself. He passed the test. He showed that there was nothing he would not entrust to God. And there was nowhere else he would go that was not with God. Verse 13, so Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And so Abraham went, he took the ram and he offered it up as the burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham, verse 14, called the place, the Lord will provide. He named the mountain, the Lord will provide. And so it said to this day, the author summarizes the story, On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. I love this story. I love this ending. Because what you name a place is extremely significant in Hebrew literature. Because it encapsulates the significance of what happened there. It's not called the place where Abraham obeyed. It's called the place where God provided. You see, something more important is taking place than Abraham's impressive obedience. What's impressive is God's commitment to us, to him, to provide a sacrifice in our place. You see, centuries later, another son, another one and only son, whom a father loved, 
would walk up that very mountain again. That son would willingly crawl up onto a wooden altar like Isaac did as well. But this time the knife would not be stopped midair. A Roman spear would cut straight through the heart of this son, Jesus Christ, the son of God. Guys, this whole story points to Jesus. Jesus is the point and the main idea of this story. Guys, even the location of this story points to him. Guys, do you know the mountains of Moriah where this is taking place is right outside the walls of Jerusalem and scholars tells us that these very mountains were precisely where Calvary, the crucifixion would have been, where Christ was crucified. And what did Abraham call that mountain? The mountain that God shall provide. That's future, right? Abraham is preaching the gospel to us that not only was something provided for my son, but there's something gonna be provided for all the sons and daughters of the earth. There's going to be a savior who would come and be the sacrifice for all of our sin. He's the greater son. More than 1,000 years later, Jesus would walk up that same mountain with wood on his back. But this time, no substitute ram would be provided because he himself was the unblemished lamb to die in our place to pay the debt that we owed due because of our sin. This Jesus would willingly, like Isaac, stay on the altar as the father plunged the knife of justice for our sins into his flesh. And because of that church, because of that, you could know that for God so loved you that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him and what he's done on the cross would not perish in hell as we ought to for our sin, but rather we would have everlasting life in heaven as a gift by faith if we trusted in Christ. Church, you see that this story is not first and foremost about Abraham's commitment to God. It's about God's commitment to you. That's why the mountain was commemorated as the mountain in which the Lord will provide. Because on this mountain, more than 1,000 years later, God did provide. He provided Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. John 1, Guys, when it's all said and done, and you look over the course of your life, the thing that will stand out, as one pastor said, is not how great your sacrifices were for God, but how great God's faithfulness and sacrifice was for you. This is what the story is about. And church, when your heart grasps the depths of God's love and sacrifice for you, you are willing like Abraham to obey him in every area of your life. We could end right here and wrap this sucker up, but I wanna give you four quick things, Lord willing, to take home with you. I adapted these from our network pastors. We were sharing notes this week. And so this is sort of a conglomeration First thing, obedience is always worth the cost. Obedience is always worth the cost. Guys, as we talked before, an idol is anything you feel that you must have in your life to make you feel happy or important or have meaning that's other than God. And this represents Isaac in the story. So in response to what God has done for you, church, have you offered up Isaac? in your life? 
Have you offered what you love most in your life to the God who most loves you? Have you offered your time, your money, your life, your heart, your emotions as a blank check before God? Have you identified what the Isaac is that maybe you're holding as an idol? You're saying, this is my thing that God may be saying, I want to test you. Do you love this or do you love me more? And God is trying to, through the test, untether you to things in this world and trying to tether you to himself and his word. Obedience is always worth the cost. And that's what we see in this story. We see that through this miracle moment, Abraham is preaching the gospel to his friends and his neighbors and his family through generations. We're seeing this story is pointing us to the Messiah. It's through this son Isaac, in fact, that Jesus would come. So his obedience is always worth the cost. And we're seeing that through the beautiful story that we share today. Guys, when you see that God has not withheld his son, his only son, his son that he loves, he's not withheld it from you, then what would you possibly want to withhold from God? Give him everything because he's given everything to you. Number two, God provides more than what you deserve and more than what you expect. Romans 8.32 really makes this point clear. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also with him graciously give us all things? One of our pastors made this analogy. Imagine that one of us in this church was just a trillionaire. If you are, please talk to me. We'd love your help. Just a trillionaire. You have so much money. And let's just pretend that family has a few kids. And that kid uh, gets to go on yachts and goes on every camp possible, wears the best clothes, has the best video games, has the best medical care coverage, has everything that kid would want to offer. Do you think that that kid would ever, ever fear asking that father for a loaf of bread or for water or for a hug? You'd be like, no, there's no, there's no way. The dad has so much. And that's the point of this passage. If God could give his children everything, then shouldn't we trust him in anything, with everything, to ask him of everything? Now, the goal is not to ask God for a yacht or you, you, you know what I'm saying. We're not going crazy with this analogy here, but we see that we can ask God of everything. God's provided more than what we deserve and more than we expect. And if God didn't withhold his son, then he won't withhold good gifts from us. We can ask him, we can depend on him, we can trust him because God didn't withhold from us. Number three, because you have been loved in this sacrificial way from God, we can now love others in this sacrificial way. First John 4, 11, God says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Guys, Genesis 22 sort of ends with sort of a summary here through the angel. It says this, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time. And he said, by yourself, I've sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that I see on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemy and your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. What does this mean? It means that through the obedience of Abraham, through the sacrifice of God, 
we see the nations be blessed. We see that Isaac was loved by God, cared for by God, provided for by God. And then through Isaac was blessing to others. Isaac realized how loved he was, that God would provide a sacrifice in his place. And Isaac grew up to be a blessing to the nations. And then through his line would come a Messiah. Guys, when you realize what God has sacrificed and done for you like Isaac, you will end up being a blessing to the nations. You'll be a blessing to your neighbors, your family, your friends. Because God has loved you in this sacrificial way, you are now empowered to love others the way you have been loved. Last thing, number four, and possibly the biggest take home. Number four, hope in the resurrection keeps you walking through the difficulties of life. Christian, if I could just encourage you, the greatest hope you have is not a different set of circumstances. It's not if God would do or not do something. We can hope for that. We can pray for that. Certainly, there are so many heartbreaking things that go on in our lives, in the world around us. But our greatest hope is not that God could change our circumstances. is that he can change our place. He can change our future. He can change our eternities. The fact that there will be a resurrection for you, Christian, meaning that your body will one day pass away. I pray that's a long time from now, and I pray that you are ready to go. I pray that it's an okay exit unto glory. But your biggest hope is that God will take your body as it's laid into the ground and your soul goes on to heaven, that one day God will, in a miraculous way, provide a resurrection new body in heaven for all of eternity. Guys, your hope in the hardest moments of your life is that this life is not the end. Your circumstances, you're not gonna be stuck in it forever. What you struggle with, with mental health, you're not gonna be left there for all of eternity. God will not just change the circumstances for you. He's gonna change your eternity. He's gonna change everything. Heal every wound, wipe every tear. Minister to every pain that you've ever had in one glorious moment. And that's what Abraham's hope was. That God, you might not change my circumstances. This might happen with Isaac. He might pass away. But I trust that even you can raise the dead. Christian, that's your greatest hope. Is that this life, these short 70, 80 years of our life, this is not it. This is not the end. You're not going to be left in what you're struggling with. That God will use the struggle to provide tests for us, to untether us from the world. But God will even use our struggles to point others to himself. And how God one day will eradicate every struggle from your life in heaven. And so church, let us point everyone to the resurrection. And that's what we'll do next week together. We'll celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And that is our ultimate hope that brings us out of every hardship, every struggle. God proves that he's sufficient in this test for Abraham. God provides the ultimate sacrifice. Let's pray together.